Welcome back to To Think Minimum, the Technology Policy Institute's podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. I'm Sarah O, oh, Senior Fellow of the Technology Policy Institute. I'm joined by Tom Leonard, Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at TPI. We are delighted today to host Adam White for a conversation about federal independent agencies, the administrative state, and in particular, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, and for an update after the Supreme Court decision in SALA Law versus CFPB in 2020. Adam White is the co-executive director of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Adam is also a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Adam has served on the leadership councils for the administrative law sections of both the ABA and the Federalist Society. After clerking for Judge David Santel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, Adam practiced constitutional and regulatory law in Washington with special focus on energy infrastructure regulation, financial regulation, administrative law, and constitutional separation of powers. Thank you, Adam, for joining us today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Tom. It's a real pleasure to be here. So we thought we would bring on an expert on the CFPB, and if you could just update us or give a brief summary of what did the Supreme Court end up deciding about recess appointments for a single director of the CFPB, and where is the CFPB now after that decision? Well, sure. The CFPB, for listeners who aren't totally up to speed on it, is an agency that was created in 2010 in part of the the Dodd-Frank financial reforms that President Obama signed. The CFPB was a response to the perceived problem that consumer financial protection duties, so regulation of, say, your mortgage or your credit cards, that kind of thing, to make sure that consumers are getting a fair shake from these service providers and lenders. Those duties were often spread across a number of agencies, and the CFPB was created to be the one-stop shop for consumer financial protection at the federal level. Like a lot of federal agencies, like the Federal Trade Commission, the CFPB was given some independence from the president. The president could not just fire the CFPB director at will the way he could, say, the Secretary of State. But unlike most independent agencies, almost all independent agencies, the CFPB was not a five-person bipartisan board like at the FTC. It was just one and only one director. And so from the very start, that was seen as a constitutional issue, to say the least, at the CFPB. And litigation proceeded for many years. And just so your listeners know, I'm hardly an unbiased, neutral observer on these things. I was involved in the original constitutional lawsuits against the CFPB back in about 2011, when I was practicing at the firm of Boyd and Gray and Associates. I'm no longer in practice, but in recent years, those constitutional fights against the CFPB continued and culminated, as you suggested, in a Supreme Court decision called SELA Law versus CFPB, in which the Supreme Court agreed that the CFPB's structure is unconstitutional. I can flesh that out in a second, but just one little nuance along the way. You mentioned recess appointments. That's uh, when the president appoints a head of an agency without getting the Senate's advice and consent because the Senate is in a recess at that time. The president has that constitutional power. That was another fight the CFPB found itself in, again, in the case I was litigating, because President Obama, when he appointed the CFPB's original director, Richard Cordray, he did it without bothering to get the Senate's advice and consent. He said, well, the Senate's in a recess, so I can just appoint whoever I want. Well, the Senate said they weren't in a recess. And that issue 
related to other appointees on that same day, that also was struck down as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court a few years earlier in a case called Noel Canning. Now, that recess appointment issue, it didn't really affect Richard Cordray at that moment because he had subsequently received Senate confirmation. It doesn't affect the current head of the CFPB, Rohit Chopra, whose appointment maybe we'll get into a little bit later. But it's another good example of the fact that the CFPB has found itself in sort of a swirl of constitutional and political challenges from the very moment of its creation. And I think that continues through to today. And I'm happy to get into this issue about the CFPB's structure and independence a little bit more if you'd like, but I better just stop for a minute. I've already said quite a lot. Well, I, I have one question about that. What is the significance of the single administrator versus the multi-member commission? I guess it has legal significance, but I mean, why does it have legal significance? Well, it all goes back almost 100 years. About 100 years ago, the Supreme Court issued a big decision in a case called Myers, reaffirming the president's constitutional power to fire his senior leaders in his administration. We would call them officers in the Constitution. Just a few years later, in a case called Humphrey's Executor, the Supreme Court backtracked a little bit and said, well, the president's power to fire officers can be limited by Congress when you're talking about a multi-member commission that's been given independence because it's not just a traditional executive office, but it's more of a quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial office. That's the Supreme Court's term. And so there were that case involved actually the Federal Trade Commission. And so for a very long time, you've had this division of agencies in Washington, the single-headed agencies that are seen as executive agencies and these multi-member commissions. Now, what the Supreme Court said in CELA law is, so long as that case Humphrey's executor remains on the books, the courts need to take seriously the difference between a single-headed agency that answers to the president and this multi-member structure, which is intended to create more deliberation, more moderation, more consensus that comes out of a process when you have three commissioners from one party, two from the other. Now, of course, the president's going to have a majority on the commission at almost any time. And so ultimately, even a multi-member commission is going to follow the president's preferred policies generally. That said, still the, having the multi-member structure and requiring more process, somewhat more consensus, the opportunity for dissenting statements by the other commissioners means you are going to get a slower pace and maybe a bit more moderation and compromise in these multi-member commissions. Again, that's the idea that you wouldn't think of these agencies, you wouldn't see them as just an arm of the executive branch, but they take on some of the qualities of a legislature or a multi-member court. And I read your amicus brief for the earlier case. There is an issue about appropriations as well. The CFPB, it might be a creature of the Federal Reserve because its funding comes from the Federal Reserve. It's $600 million a year that's not appropriated by Congress. What does that mean for the independence of the agency or oversight? It's a huge, huge deal because in addition to the question about the CFPB structure and its independence from the president, which was the issue in CELA law where the Supreme Court recently said that the Congress could not give the CFPB director independence from the president. He or she has to be totally susceptible to the president's direction, hired with the Senate's advice and consent, but fireable at will by the president for any reason or no reason at all. That's all separate from a second issue, which remains lingering around the CFPB. And it's the fact that Congress gave up its power of the purse over the CFPB. Most agencies are funded through appropriations. That's the hook. There's a great line in James Madison wrote in one of the Federalist Papers where he said the power of the purse is the most effectual check against the overgrown prerogatives of other parts of government. And that power of the purse was, from the very beginning, Congress's main 
power over administration in addition to just writing the laws. And it's a great tool for sort of day-to-day oversight while the laws remain in place. Well, some agencies have received funding outside of that process. Some like the, the FCC gets some fund and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission gets some funding out of user fees and that kind of thing. The CFPB was given total independence from Congress. As you noted, instead of going sort of hat in hand to Congress, asking for money every year, the CFPB, again, led by just one director, goes to the Federal Reserve. The CFPB is nominally part of the Federal Reserve system, even though it's independent of the Fed. It goes to the Fed and he doesn't really have to ask. He can just say, I would like my $600 million now. And the Federal Reserve system funds the CFPB totally without any kind of discretion from Congress. Congress can try to do oversight, but we've seen over the CFPB's first decade, Congress really, its oversight powers are very, very limited because it doesn't have anything in terms of the power of the purse to rein it in. So the CFPB is in effect totally independent from Congress. And from the very start, that's one of the other constitutional issues that I and others have raised about the CFPB. I think it really contributes to the CFPB's boldness in two directions. One is pushing back at Congress. In the early years of its existence, the first CFPB director had some amazing oversight hearings in Congress where a member of Congress would ask about his spending on a new building, and he snapped back really aggressively to the kind of lashed back of the Congresswoman and said, well, what business is it of yours? In other hearings, members of the Senate asked if the CFPB would try to define some of the terms of its very vaguely worded statutes, more precisely through rulemaking. And the director just kind of shrugged it off and said, well, I don't think that'd be very helpful. We'll just kind of decide these interpretations as we go. So the CFPB has from the start really pushed its boundaries vis-a-vis Congress. It's also pushed its boundaries in terms of its regulatory authority. There are some things that the CFPB regulates that are pretty straightforward part of its statutory mandate, things like mortgages, things like credit cards. There was a specific carve-out of the CFPB statute of authority over auto lending. Nevertheless, the CFPB sort of pushed for more power over auto loans and tried to demand more information, assert regulatory authority over those things too. And so you see the CFPB often pushing at its boundaries, like all agencies, but with even less restraint from Congress, which has made it, again, I think, most controversial agency in modern times. So the $600 million, is that that's at the Fed's discretion? They could raise it or lower it? Or no, it's defined by statute. It was originally set as a percentage. In its opening years, it was set as a percentage of the Fed's annual operating revenues. It's been a long time since I've looked at the specific numbers. If I remember correctly, it was something, I might be totally wrong here, so, so listeners can feel free to set me straight, but I think it might have been around 10% of the Fed's operating budget. And the math came out to somewhere around $600 million. Sarah referred earlier to an amicus brief that I filed when I was still in private practice. We filed it in the the Supreme Court case involving recess appointments. And we highlighted some of the structural issues related to that case in the special circumstances of the CFPB. And we really focused on the power of the purse issue. So the director of the CFPB, Director Chopra, he doesn't even have to say please. He could just come and demand his money. We should all be so lucky. So even though it's nominally part of the Fed, it's not really accountable to the Fed. That's right. There's always, the statute was always very hazy on this. If I remember correctly, the Dodd-Frank said it's an independent executive agency within the Federal Reserve System. And nobody's ever known quite what exactly that means. I should say, by the way, in the early years of the CFPB, when it would publish its annual report, it really went out of its way 
to stress how independent it was, especially in terms of not having to go to Congress for appropriations. Now, the CFPB itself and its supporters, including Senator Warren, who played a crucial role in its creation, they said that the CFPB needed to be independent of these outside funding streams like, like Congress, Congress's funding, so that it couldn't be captured by political influence in Congress. And, and obviously, regulatory capture is often a real problem. And I don't presume that every member of Congress is always at all times doing what's in the public interest. But I see Congress's power of the purse as a fundamental part of constitutional accountability, for better and for worse. The CFPB in its early years really liked to brag that it wasn't accountable to Congress. Frankly, after we started kind of calling them out on that in our early legal filings, they started to be a little bit less cavalier bragging about their independence from Congress. I mentioned Senator Warren, just one last thing. This really has always been her creation. She's its champion in the Senate, but she called for its creation in the first instance. And around the time of the 2008 financial crisis, she wrote an article in the quarterly journal Democracy, not the Journal of Democracy, that's different, but Democracy, a quarterly journal, where she called for the creation of basically a multi-member consumer protection agency for financial services modeled on the Consumer Product Safety Commission. So she originally wanted a multi-member structure too, but over time it became this sort of special novel agency. And many years later, after her, her election to the Senate, she remains its staunchest advocate on Capitol Hill. Well, maybe we can get into this issue of its relationship to FTC issues, if any. um, Obviously, the new director of the uh, CFPB, Rohit Chopra, was a commissioner at the FTC and just recently became director and seems reluctant to leave FTC issues behind. And they have just issued a request for data from some of the big tech companies that's ostensibly, you know, talking about their payment systems, which I guess gives it some relationship to, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of the things I'm saying, essentially gives us some relationship to the CFPB's mission, but it seems to be a pretty broad request for data on what these companies do, the types of data they collect, and what they do with it. So I guess the question, you know, there's multiple questions there. What are the limits of the CFPB's authority? What's the delineation of the lines of authority between the CFPB and the FTC? Could the CFPB regulate these companies through the back door via their payment systems? So The CFPB has a few sets of authorities. One is it just inherited a lot of pre-existing federal statutes governing financial services, including the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which maybe we'll get to in a little bit. It's relevant to another case the CFPB got involved with. That's one bundle of authorities, these old statutes. Another bundle of authority is the CFPB in the Dodd-Frank Act has a broad mandate to regulate against unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts and practices in connection with financial services, or I guess it's unfair, deceptive, and abusive financial services and products. In the Dodd-Frank Act, as it defines certain aspects of the CFPB's authority, it does specifically refer to payments. For those who are keeping score at home, this is at 12 USC 5512, and it's a laundry list of, of authorities and definitions. But one of the, in its definition of authorities, one thing that gets listed is, and I'll just give a quote here I have in front of me, providing payments or other financial data processing products or services to a consumer by any technological means, including the processing or storing financial or banking data for any payment instrument or through any payment systems or networks used for processing payments data. And it goes on to specifically refer to online banking and mobile telecommunications networks. 
So the CFPB at first glance does have pretty broad authority with respect to online payments. Now you ask a good question. The CFPB is getting involved in these tech companies. The FTC has already been involved with these tech companies. The Department of Justice and others, the FCC, others are getting involved with these big tech companies. How does the CFPB's power fit into this? And I describe it as this. The CFPB has its authority I just mentioned over payments. The FTC has a couple of sets of authorities. One is the monopoly issue, the antitrust issue. So the FTC, like the Justice Department, has authority over companies when they get too big or they when they start doing anti-competitive acts or practices intended to sort of push competitors out of the market and give it a monopoly or maintain a monopoly. The FTC also has another bundle of authority over just consumer protection. And that's where you come very, very close to the CFPB. The CFPB has consumer protection on financial services. The FTC has consumer protection in general to make sure that consumers know generally about the products that they're buying, they're getting what they're paying for, and so on. And that's a gross oversimplification. I have a lot of colleagues at George Mason's Law School who could give you a much more precise description. A lot of them have been FTC commissioners or served on the FTC, so they know it inside and out. But just very generally, you've touched on a crucial problem here, which is that the CFPB's authority to protect consumers on financial services comes very close to the FTC's broader consumer authority, especially when they're looking at the same companies who are offering consumers a bundle of payment services and other services. So just a few weeks ago, the CFPB, under again, its new director, issues an order to a number of companies If I remember correctly, it was Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and then some of the more specifically payment services like PayPal and Square. It issued orders to all of them, and it posted sort of a generic version of the order on on the CFPB's website, ordering these companies to submit information regarding their payment services and practices. Um, and, And these get pretty detailed in what they're looking for in terms of how these things are offered publicly to consumers and also how they're handled within sort of the, in the back office, so to speak, the, the actual payment technology. And the CFPB has expressed interest in privacy and data harvesting and the use of consumers' data and so on, where, again, it's going to come very close to the FTC. The CFPB also said it wants to study these practices as used by a couple of Chinese companies, WeChat and also Alipay. I don't know how the CFPB is going to assert authority over these foreign companies and what it means to study them, but it has at least acknowledged that these issues, these technologies are not limited to the United States. But I've gone on way too long, but let me just say, Tom, because you do raise such a great question, just want to put a fine point on this for listeners. The whole point of the CFPB's creation was that there was so many authorities spread so broadly across the federal government, and it was important to concentrate them all in one agency, again, to make the CFPB the one-stop shop. Well, to see the CFPB's authority then overlapping with other agencies, the FTC, in another case, we might talk about the Henderson case, they filed with the FTC, they filed a brief with the FTC and also with, I think, some North Carolina regulators. The whole point of the CFPB is lost when the CFPB is just sort of part of a swarm of agencies all looking at the same things, but with different authorities, different specific legal authorities and powers. It begins to confuse more than it clarifies. Now, again, the CFPB does have very specific authority over payments, but for that reason, I think the CFPB needs to be very careful about stretching its mandate. It needs to be very, very clear about precisely what its role is versus the FTC and the Justice Department, the states and others 
precisely so that Congress, the president, and the people and courts can hold the CFPB accountable for its specific part of all of this, and then hold the FTC accountable for its specific part of this, and so on. So a couple of questions with respect to this. So, so let's say, first of all, I have a question about what the CFPB's authority is to compel the production of data. I mean, the FTC, I think, has limited authority to compel production of data. It has to do a 6B study, and then mm-hmm. it, uh, I think those are, I don't know the exact terms of the law, but that gives it some authority to compel data. But uh, secondly, so let's say the CFPB, you know, does this, gets this data, and finds out that these companies are using data from their payment system to inform their behavioral advertising. So what? What, what can they do about it? Well, I, I, I get the impression that Rohit Chopra doesn't like behavioral advertising, but so what? I mean, Tom, before I answer that, let me just clarify it really quickly. When I threw out a citation earlier, I think I got it wrong. The CFPB's authority over payments specifically is Section 1002 of the Dodd-Frank Act. The number I threw out a few minutes earlier goes to the heart of this question. Where does the CFPB get authority to demand this information? Well, under Section 1022 of the CFPB Act, part of Dodd-Frank, they have authority to make rules. And so when they issued this order to the tech companies, they invoked their rulemaking power. So technically, very specifically speaking, this order for information is ostensibly an adjunct to their rulemaking power. And the CFPB is collecting information so that it can prescribe general rules going forward, regulating the payment practices of these companies and other companies that might provide similar services. But of course, surely it must be the case that the CFPB is obtaining this information for a variety of purposes. It could give rise to subsequent enforcement actions by the CFPB. It could give rise to the CFPB trying to name and shame bad practices and so on. So I'm sure the CFPB has a variety of purposes, but technically speaking, it's gathering this information for the sake of future rulemaking. Which, if they were to do that, they would have to do under normal APA procedures, is that right? That's right. They'd have to go through, I mean, well, sometimes agencies try to get around that. They try to use so-called guidance documents and so on. But to the extent that the CFPB honestly is doing this for the sake of rulemaking, they'd have to go through a notice and comment process. But before you begin the notice and comment process, the agencies do have to begin from a certain set of information. Now, the CFPB has a, has a variety of technical tools. Again, they could use enforcement and other things. They do have, if I remember correctly, some form of the equivalent of subpoena power over some sources of information. I'm, now I'm getting a little hazy, so I, I better stop short of getting too specific. But here, it really is tied specifically to their rulemaking power. So if they proposed a rule which dealt with the use of data I guess, from the payment platforms, but it presumably could, it would be more general than that. For the use of advertising and place restrictions on that, that's pretty close to FTC land, isn't it? Yeah, very, very close. It would have to be, as I understand it, the CFPB would only be able to promulgate rules on advertising really specific to advertising about payment services. But again, as it's kind of reminiscent of the 1990s fight about Microsoft, where Microsoft had an operating system, but then wanted to integrate in Internet Explorer, the, old, the original Microsoft web browser. Here, where Apple, Google, and others are Amazon, are integrating payments into a variety of services, right? Then it gets more complicated, less so with PayPal and Square, where they really are sort of specifically 
payment service companies. I mean, they're more complicated than that, but first and foremost, payments. For the other companies, which not coincidentally are the companies that tend to be at the center of sort of the broader tech fights, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and so on. Do you really do have the FTC and the CFPB in the same lane? And I suspect you'll see a lot of joint action from those companies. You could see a joint rulemaking, for example. I, well, it gets complicated with the FTC. As you know, they have their rulemaking power is complicated. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility. You could see the CFPB, FTC, or others moving forward on some joint regulatory actions where the CFPB would nominally be responsible for one small part of it, the part in its lane, and the other agency would be responsible for its part of its authority, but where in fact these things are very, very blended as a whole. Again, I mean, part of the ironies here is the CFPB was created ostensibly to be independent, right? To just go do its job. But as we've seen in recent eras, and it's not limited to the Biden administration, we've seen this, we saw it in the Trump administration, we saw it in the Obama administration, more and more coordination among the independent agencies and the executive agencies. So here you have the CFPB surely in regular communications with the FTC. And again, as you mentioned, the CFPB director is newly arrived from the FTC and has sort of tried to keep a hand on the FTC's business even after his departure. Surely also in coordination with the White House, where issues of tech, competition and consumer protection have been a central part of the White House's own priorities, as we've seen in some executive orders, and surely with the involvement of Professor Tim Wu, one of the leading sort of intellectuals in these areas, a Columbia law professors at the White House. This is all part of a cohesive whole, which in some ways defeats the purpose of having an independent CFPB and an independent FTC. That's a good segue to maybe the Henderson versus the Source for Public Data case, where Rohit Chopra and Lena Khan, director and chair, they put out a joint public statement from the CFPB and the FTC talking about how it's important for the companies to not claim Section 230 immunity from consumer and banking laws to circumvent those laws. That raised questions to me that they're entering into Section 230 talk together. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that case and what's happening? Yeah, this is the case I alluded to just in passing a few moments ago. There was a brief filed jointly in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. So the states of it's the states of Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. They filed a joint brief, the FTC, the CFPB, and the North Carolina Department of Justice. And they, as you mentioned, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Section 230. And it is fascinating, right, that suddenly the CFPB is drawn into the Section 230 fights. Here's the basic issue in the case. As your listeners know, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act gives interactive computer services, so generally websites, broad immunity from the information for the republishing of information on their platforms. So when users are able to post, say, things to Twitter, Twitter is not responsible for copyright violations and things like that under Section 230 because Congress gave them broad immunity. And I'm sure it's more complicated than that. I may have misstated to the margins, but in general, Section 230 has a broad immunity provision for these interactive websites. Well, the source for public data, as I understand it, is a website that gathers a lot of information related to people's creditworthiness. So it's everything from credit data to public records on criminal histories. They obtain this information, as I understand it, they purchase a lot of this information, they combine it together on the website these various data streams. Well, the question in the Henderson case is, 
are they entitled to Section 230 protection? Are they an interactive computer service? And if so, are they immune from liability under this other body of law, the Fair Credit Reporting Act? The trial court that first heard the case, I think it was the, I can't remember now, but it was the Eastern, I guess it was the Eastern District of Virginia. So right across the Potomac River from Washington. The trial court concluded that the source for public data is an interactive computer service that's entitled to protection under Section 230. And furthermore, that protection immunizes the source for public data against liability under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And there, under that act, they might have been susceptible to liability if they were not taking care to ensure that the information they were sharing about people's creditworthiness was accurate. And there was disputes about whether some of the, I think it was the, some of the criminal information that was being incorporated into their data set was accurate or not. The trial court said, yes, you're immune. The source of public data is immune to FCRA liability because Section 230 is broad immunity. It has a small handful of exceptions. It does not include the credit law in that set of exceptions. So therefore, the immunity trumps the Credit Act. So this is where the CFPB comes in. The Fair Credit Reporting Act is one of the statutes that the CFPB is, by statute now, authorized to enforce. It pre-exists the CFPB. The CFPB inherited that statute. And you have the CFPB, the FTC, and these North Carolina regulators filing a brief together in the Fourth Circuit saying the trial court got it wrong, that the, what the source of public data does is not just obtain and republish information. It's not a sort of a passive, pass-through entity. It actually seeks out information, purchases it, incorporates it together, and so does much more than just the mere interactive computer services that are at the heart of Section 230. So it's a complicated case, and I'm sure your listeners can point out maybe details I got wrong along the way, hopefully not. But the core issue, again, is interesting CFPB involvement in an issue, Section 230, that normally goes beyond its bounds. But because its bounds are so broad and bump up against so many other areas of law, you suddenly have the CFPB with its authority over credit involved in this now years-long fight over the meaning of Section 230 and jointly with the FTC. Well, the FTC used to have the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Yeah, that's right. It's The creation of the CFPB solved maybe some problems, as, as many see it, but created others by complicating the border between the CFPB and the FTC. Now, it'll be interesting to see how this case plays out. It's really less about the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It really is a case about the meaning of Section 230. And I don't think the Fourth Circuit is going to give a whole lot of deference to the arguments of the CFPB, since the CFPB is not really one of the agencies to whom Section 230 is committed. So they're really an outside observer, unlike perhaps the FCC, if it gets involved in this case. And I don't know if it's filed an amicus brief in this case. But, you know, the irony here is that the CFPB has been pushing its bounds for so long, really treading on sometimes on territory that might be better left to state regulators or others. It's, it's sort of the height of irony now to see the CFPB a decade into its existence complaining that other agencies or other statutes are encroaching on its turf. That's a total reversal of roles for the CFPB, which has been very content to try to eat others' lunch for about a decade now. Just as an aside, I heard a a former FTC commissioner somewhat some time after the CFPB was created saying that the FTC lost, it, at least in the consumer protection area, lost its most, most important function when the Fair Credit Reporting Act was given to the... Yeah, you, 
You wonder how much Congress thought about that at the time in 2010. Obviously, the financial crisis was right in the rearview mirror. There was a huge push to create not just the CFPB, but the Financial Stability Oversight Council, another statute on what was called orderly liquidation. It was a bankruptcy provision. You had things, you know, push over the Volcker rule, right? The role of banks in taking deposits, but also investing. You had any number of issues. And honestly, the transfer of authority of the Fair Credit Reporting Act over to the CFPB was part of just a laundry list of more than a dozen, I think, statutory authorities to the CFPB. And so it's not clear to me how thoughtful this was on the part of Congress, and certainly not clear whether they would like to have it this way now. And, you know, 10 years later, it might be the right time to go back and revisit. I mean, I definitely think it's the right time to go back and revisit Dodd-Frank. And when they do, I think this will be a good question to ask. Is it time to maybe rethink the particular bundle of statutes that the CFPB enforces to the extent that it made sense in 2010? And I don't know that it did, but to the extent it made sense in 2010, it might not make sense now where the key issues have changed and we're focusing primarily on tech companies. And it's not clear that a coherent regulatory framework is Dodd-Frank's framers saw it a decade ago, is necessarily a coherent regulatory framework for tech issues today, which really are front and center in American life. Let me just try to clarify something you said before to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. You were saying that they could investigate the use of data from payment systems for advertising of payment systems, but not more generally? As I understand it, right, the CFPB's mandate doesn't run to tech companies advertising or publicly offering their services generally. The CFPB's mandate goes just strictly to the financial services that are offered to consumers by these companies. So it's, I, it's, uh, oh, sorry, I get that impression reading the, the press release, but at any rate, from, well, I mean, I, I mean, that fair point. And again, I think that's a symptom of both the CFPB never being sort of shy about pushing its boundaries, but also the CFPB now getting involved with companies that offer a variety of very different, but very deeply intertwined bundles of services, right? So payment services in conjunction with everything else that the tech companies are offering. Of course, given the unpopularity of the tech companies in Congress and elsewhere, there may not be anybody, they may all be cheering them on. So That's true. I'd say at this given moment in time, most likely the only part of government that's going to rein in this effort by the CFPB would be the courts to the extent that the CFPB is stepping beyond its laws. And here, maybe to pull in another theme, the CFPB and other agencies in the Biden administration are about to start bumping into what I think will be real headwinds in the federal courts. The federal courts, not just with the last round of appointments by President Trump, but also the generation of judges appointed by President George W. Bush, have made very clear in decisions that this generation of judges is much more skeptical of broad assertions of power by agencies on some of the, what we often call them in this area of law, the major questions of American law and policy. And when an agency suddenly asserts broad powers over a set of companies or issues or individuals not traditionally within its jurisdiction, this new generation of judges informed by Justice Thomas and Gorsuch and others tends to express skepticism. And we've seen that already in a few early decisions. The Biden administration's rulemaking process, by and large, has been a little slow to get started. I think in part because the agencies, and this isn't just the CFPB and the FTC, but in general, the agencies, I think, recognize they're going to be facing headwinds and they'll probably try to paper up their rules as much as possible with information and data 
and legal arguments. But next year, in 2022, as we see a lot of these major rules coming out of the agencies, I think they're going to face real scrutiny in the courts. The CFPB, if it's just gathering information on these issues now, will be maybe in the second wave of major rules that come out of the agencies after what we're seeing out of the EPA and others. But the CFPB is going to face, I think, very similar challenges in court to the extent that it tries to push beyond the generally understood limits of its authority. That's not to say it's going to lose the cases. It's just to say it's going to have to work pretty hard to win the cases. Well, there's no, in terms of the Biden administration and regulation, there's no OMB director. There's no OIRA director. I realize the CFPB and FTC rules don't go through OIRA, but I guess it's it's a slow appointments process. It is, but I will say it's very, very interesting to see the OIRA seat go unfilled. This is the White House regulatory oversight position. President Biden, from his very first moments in office, made clear in, in some of his pronouncements and orders that he wanted a fundamental rethink of the regulatory process and the way in particular that the regulatory process handles issues of equity and justice and other considerations. And to see this OIRA seat go empty for so long is very, very interesting. Now, again, the Biden administration has also prioritized consumer protection and these issues of the power of large companies and large tech companies. And so it's doubly interesting then to see the CFPB's regulatory process moving a little slowly. I mean, this is a pretty bold order, to say the least, from the CFPB director, but it's a bold order nine, 10 months into the administration. And the fact that the CFPB is only now sort of getting moving is very, very interesting. A presidential term is just four years. Maybe President Biden will get reelected, but you do, every administration tends to have a sense of urgency in its first year, knowing how quickly its time might go. And to see the CFPB picking up on such a bold agenda item just a year into the, the administration is, is very, very interesting. Well, Chopra's only been there for whatever, it's a month or so, right? So, that's right. That's yeah. right. So. Well, on that note, we'll have to keep watch for 2022 and watch the federal courts, watch what the CFPB does and if there is oversight from Congress. And we'll have to have you back on, Adam. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. It was very interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here and I'll gladly be back anytime. Thank you very much.